We are studying spiritual awakening. So the question is, what is spiritual awakening? And uh, a lot of times the terms awakening or revival are uh, interchanged. And then sometimes people divide them up. You know, they'll give awakening one definition. Like awakening is for the church. And then revival is for when people get saved. And then some people mash it all together. Um, I'll probably be using the term awakening mostly tonight, but I might interchange it myself. Uh, One of the struggles, and these guys who wrote this book that we're basing this, uh, this series off of called Fresh Encounter by Henry Blackaby and Claude King, many of you may know know of them already <clears throat> written a lot of books and uh you know uh popular speakers and whatnot but um is this thing echoing to anybody else but me okay good i can handle it if you can so uh what they say is that it's really hard to to just put a sticker or a label or a definition on the concepts of awakening and revival because uh, you know, they're just kind of messy, you know, and they don't all happen the same way and it, you know, come about in different ways. And so um, if you read the book, uh, I'm, I'm working through the book. I haven't read the whole book, and this is the study guide based off the book called Fresh Encounter. They kind of talk about that a little bit, and then they offer a definition, their own definition, which is which I thought was a pretty uh, pretty good one. Um, but the book was it was it's not an expensive book, ten bucks, and so if you want to kind of read that on the side, uh, invite you to do that. I'm working through it too, just to see, sort of get fill in a little bit uh, of what they say. But we're going to go through, kind of start walking through the study guide here at our Bible study on Thursday nights. So spiritual awakening. I'm going to start here on the. Uh, I'm not going to start at the top here. I'm going to start on page seven. The question: What is spiritual awakening? And so I'm just going to read the first few lines, and then that's going to be enough for me to talk the rest of the evening. Okay? So spiritual awakening occurs when large numbers of people or a high percentage of people in an area experience this new birth to spiritual life in a short period of time. Spiritual awakenings are not just times of mass decisions for Christ, Decisions may or may not reflect a new birth. In a spiritual awakening, people's lives are changed radically. Okay, so let me stop there. And then in a few lines, a few lines down, they quote 1 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. So I thought about their statements here. And I thought, well, I think I agree with that. That... A new, the experience of a new birth in Christ is not the same as a decision. And but then I thought, well, uh, you know, how how do they come to the place where they are saying that this is a part of spiritual awakening? So I said, well, I'm going to challenge these guys a little bit, you know. And so I said, I'm going to do some research, right? And so you don't have to do the research; I did it for you. <laughs> Amen. And uh, so I'm going to give you uh, just a few nuggets of how I came approach this was, well, let me think of, and so, you know, you just get on Google, History Revival, you know, what Wikipedia pops up first, and then you read some things, and then that leads you here and there. 
Um, and I began to find that uh, what these guys are saying really is true, and it is backed up. So I went um, and I started looking at it from Luther, Martin Luther, if you're familiar with that name, and the Protestant Reformation, if you're familiar with that, and church history, 1517, and all of the dissatisfaction with the Catholic Church at that time, and, and so the Protestant Reformation began. And then out of that started to flow this concept of, of faith alone and the new birth, uh, or salvation by faith alone and the new birth in Christ. And it dramatically affected uh, it, the, uh, the movement with the Moravians, which was a huge revival. It affected John Wesley and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield and uh, the Pietist movement before them, which was uh, uh, Philip Spinner and Augustus Frank. And so I'm going to read some of the excerpts. And I, but, you know, I didn't want to just read what somebody wrote about them. I wanted to hear what they had to say. And I had to work really hard to find their journal entries. Okay. Now, I hope this is worth the price of admission, which was nothing. So, if you leave with nothing, we're even. Hallelujah. Okay. So, I want, this is a guy named Minnow Simmons. M-E-N-N-O-S-I-M-O-N-S. Minnow Simmons. Just right on the hills of the region. Okay. This guy was writing. So, if you go and you find some of his writings, just... Understand where he was at. Give him some grace because, man, this guy was angry at the Catholic Church. Okay? So wherever you stand with that or in your personal life, I do think he had some good things to say, but, man, this guy was mad. Okay? So, <laughs> but he was one of the first that I could find that wrote very clearly about this idea of a new birth, an actual new birth inside of us. Okay? So, uh, and I forgot to give you... One of the main scriptures, which many of you know it, John chapter 3, verse 3, right? And so let me read that because I want to make sure that um, it's clear that I'm, I really tried to stay close to scripture here. This is not a history lesson at all, okay? So Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, right? That famous meeting in John chapter 3, the Gospel of John, and and so Nicodemus uh, is talking to him and, you know, said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God. This is verse 2. But no man can do these miracles that you do except God be with him. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So that's one of the classic phrases and then the Second Corinthians passage that they quote here in our study guide as well, that uh, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. So, so this guy was writing in response to uh, the Reformation. And he says, we must be born from above, must be changed. And renewed in our hearts, and must be transplanted from the unrighteous and evil nature of Adam into the true and good nature of Christ, or we can never in all eternity be saved by any means, be they human or divine. Okay? So this guy in the mid 1500s is saying, You got to be born again, right? It is not mental ascent, 
it is not ascribing to a certain set of theological principles. You have to be actually be born again. So then I found this guy, Augustus Frank, and he was friends with Philip Spinner, and they had the Pietist movement. Now, so I'm fast-forwarding about roughly 100 years or so, and this guy grew up uh, in a Christian home, Lutheran guy, you know, really great. And so he was a preacher, was, you know, kind of doing his preaching thing. And then he had a crisis of faith when he was going to preach a sermon out of, it was uh, John, he was going to preach on the verse, John 20, verse 31, okay? And that verse was... When John states, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, you might have life through his name. And so, this guy, who's preached a lot of sermons, had a moment where he read that verse and realized he couldn't preach a sermon on that because he didn't know if that applied to him personally. And so, he went through about a week, reading his full journal is fascinating he went through about a week of anguish of trying to figure out if he was really even a christian i mean he was questioning everything and you know the sun, you know i could just picture the anguish because sunday morning is coming and he's supposed to preach and he's like god i can't preach if you don't do something you know uh but god did do something and and so i just want to read to you a few lines out of his journal where he kind of describes uh what happens So he's sort of in this anguish, and he says, It was in such anguish of soul as this that on the Sunday above mentioned, I again knelt down and called upon that God and Savior whom I knew not nor believed in for deliverance from my wretched state. Now remember this guy grew up in church. He's a Lutheran guy who just, you know, he was a preacher, right? I mean, and he's saying, God, deliver me from my wretched state. Uh, Let me go find my place. I lost it here. If there really be a God and Savior, and the Lord heard me, his paternal love was so great that he would not divest me by degrees of my heartfelt distress and doubts with which I might well have been satisfied, but that I might be the more thoroughly convinced that my reason might have nothing to object to his power and faithfulness. He answered me all at once. Every doubt disappeared. I was assured in my heart of the favor of God in Christ Jesus. I can not only call him God, but also call him Father. All sorrow and distress of mind was removed. I was animated with a flood of joy, so that I blessed and praised God with an overflowing heart and tongue who had manifested such mercy to me. I had knelt down in great distress and doubt, and rose up again with unspeakable joy and certainty. It seemed to me as if I had spent all my life in a deep sleep, as if I had done everything only as in a dream, and I now for the first time awoke from it. Whoa, what an amazing testimony. What's amazing to me also is that we can identify with that. The same God who moved in in uh, Augustus Frank's heart in the mid-1600s moves in our hearts today. Now, this man experienced the power of God. What he described here is not mental ascent 
meaning a decision, you know. So today, and I'm not, look, I'm not here to judge. Yes, Marty, go ahead. Very, yes. I love that. Yeah, let me go find that again. It was in such anguish of soul as this that on the Sunday above mentioned, again I knelt down and called upon that God and Savior whom I knew not nor believed in for deliverance from my wretched state. Yeah. I mean, that's powerful. This man had a moment where he realized that he was preaching a God he didn't know. And so he had an experience with God. And that's different than making a decision that, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, I believe he died and rose again. Yes, I believe that he is ascended to heaven and is coming again. And that I am saved by grace through faith. Okay, So am I the judge to say that people who come to a revival and come forward and make a decision are saved or not? I'm not the judge. But what I, what I do believe is that that's a different thing than being born again, having a born-again experience where God enters your heart and totally changes you. And so what Blackaby and King are challenging us is that that is something that marks an awakening, not necessarily decisions for Christ. People are experiencing this same thing that this man experienced. Now, if you don't mind, I'm going to read you another one. Okay? Um, and now I'm getting my notes just all mixed up, but it'll be all right. All right. If you grew up in the Wesleyan church like I did, John Wesley, right? Um, so, May 24, 1738. So, Wesley was not very successful uh, as a minister as a preacher uh, for a while and then on May 24th 1738 he shows up to a Moravian uh, prayer service okay and I love how he starts out this is this is straight from his journal in the evening I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street <laughs> I just love that he's just so so matter of fact just so vulnerable, I went very unwillingly. <laughs> About a quarter before nine, while he, meaning the man who was reading, oh, where, where one, I, I skipped a line, where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. I began to pray with all my might for those who had, in a more special manner, despitefully used me and persecuted me. I then testified openly to all there what I now first felt in my heart. John Wesley had an experience with God. He didn't have a decision towards God. Now, let me read you another thing. Oh, I, this is a phone. I'd never heard this one before. Charles Wesley wrote something in his journal that, uh, and so, so that was John Wesley's journal, where Charles, John had a brother. He had many siblings. But one of them, Charles, good buddy of his, says in his journal, uh, let's see, the, 
let's see. He records that on the night of May 24th, following John's experience in Aldergate, he was visited by his brother. So John Wesley has the experience, then he goes and finds his brother Charles. And so he writes, Charles writes in his journal, About ten, my brother was brought in triumph by a troop of friends. I believe, cried John. And so this is Charles saying he noticed immediately that there was something different about his brother. His brother had had a powerful experience with God. Amen. Well, Wesley wrote a letter to his mother. Time after this, July 29, 1725. He says, and he says this, Faith is not barely a speculative, rational thing, a cold, lifeless ascent, a train of ideas in the head, but also a disposition of the heart. Christian faith is then not only an ascent to the whole gospel of Christ, but also a full reliance on the blood of Christ, a trust in the merits of his life, death, and resurrection, a recumbency upon him as our atonement and our life as given for us, and living in us. So suddenly John Wesley had the living Christ, the power of Christ living inside of him. He didn't have it before. He didn't have it before. Changed his life forever. Amen? Um, I'm going to read you one more, and I am going to read it for a reason. Because George Whitfield, he... And so John Wesley and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield were all major players in the First Great Awakening in the 1700s, which spread throughout um, Europe and uh, in the Americas and mostly the Western world. Um, and it it is uh, a little unfortunate that most history regarding revivals and the Awakenings primarily focuses on the West, um, though the Lord is, has been working throughout the world for all time. Um, but... Um, but because the Protestant Reformation started in the West, Eastern Germany, it's just sort of, that's how history records it. Um, so, George Whitfield, another uh, main figure in the First Great Awakening, says, I must bear witness, he was friends with John and Charles Wesley, I must bear witness to my old friend, Mr. Charles Wesley. He put a book into my hands called The Life of God and the Soul of Man, whereby God showed me that I must be born again or be damned. Now, he was already a preacher when he read this book, by the way. And whenever I go to Oxford, I cannot help running to that place where Jesus Christ first revealed himself to me and gave me the new birth. He experienced the new birth. So, that is one of the main threads of an awakening or a revival, is that people are experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit going deep inside of their hearts and making them reborn. They're healing their brokenness. They're causing them to pray for those that they have hated before. They're causing them to forgive those that they have been holding offense towards. They're causing them to no lo- to lose a taste for sins that have had a grip on them. You know, we could read more of all that. Uh, John Wesley said, I won't read it, but he, he basically says as you keep reading his journal that suddenly all the things that he struggled with, he still struggled with them, but instead of being conquered by them, he was able to conquer them now. He had a power within him. It's not that he came out perfect. Yeah, he was a new creation, maybe not a perfect creation. Same with uh, uh, Augustus Frank was very honest about that too in these journals. I love these guys, and they're saying, 
we're not perfect, but I got a power I didn't have before. And that can only that is a work of God. That is not something that you can create within yourself. That is a mark of true awakening or true revivals. People are experiencing the power of God inside of their hearts that way. Amen? Amen. So, um, so yeah, I covered that. Good. Hallelujah. Pretty good on that part, I think. Um, all right, so I want to I want to real quick sort of to round off just some context here because uh, we sort of traced you know I sort of talked about from from Luther and Protestant Reformation and you know Luther was sort of the spearhead of that I mean there were so many other guys that were involved in that uh, it's fascinating to read them um, but and if you're interested in it it's tons of it on the internet um, and. But as we move from the First Great Awakening and then, you know, all kinds of things go on, right, after the First Great Awakening as far as politics and, you know, changes in America and all this stuff. And then, well, it wasn't until January 1st, 1901, right, when the concept of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the Pentecostal movement began. Okay, this guy named Charles Parham out in Bethel, uh, it was Bethel Bible School in Oklahoma. Does anybody happen to remember? Yeah, I got it. I got it in here. I won't. I won't uh, make you wait for me to find it. It was in Oklahoma or Kansas? No, Kansas. It was in Kansas. Thank you. Um, and there was a lady named Agnes Osmond who just went to the went to the Bible College and just reading the scriptures decided she wanted more. She she was reading about the first century church in Acts and the speaking in tongues and all that. And so she said, I want it. So she asked Charles Parham to lay his hands on her and the other elders. They did, and she began to speak in tongues. And then that was sort of one of the first recorded. Now, there are other ones that were recorded previously, hundreds of years before. Okay, but that was sort of the uh, the initial event that then ended up with William Seymour going to uh, Los Angeles, California, Azusa Street, and that is what's called the Pentecostal movement, right? So it wasn't until then that this concept of baptism in the Holy Spirit came came on the scene. Okay, so so don't fault Wesley and Whitfield and these guys for not having that language. Okay, what happened to them was of the Holy Spirit. I mean, the Holy Spirit came in and just changed them. And they may have spoken in tongues. I don't know if they did. Um, I don't remember spe- specifically if Wesley said he did or not. But man, the Holy Spirit came in, and that's evident from their journals. So uh, so that's just sort of gives some context because after, you, so you sort of have this, this new birth theology expectation that's with awakening that gets up into the 1900s and then you add for the baptism of the Holy Spirit and those kind of run side by side and then a lot of times they get mixed and, you know, some get mad because one emphasizes the other over the other and, you know, so that's kind of where we are now still. <laughs> right, and that just spread throughout all the world, and so praise God, we just get to deal with that, right? All right, so let's move on. The next thing that these guys say, by the way, if you're not sure if you have had that experience, part my being that that is for you, and that God has that in His heart for you to receive an experience of the awakening of the Holy Spirit within you. 
and giving you power to live life in a way that you never have before. So if you're a Christian, if you're going to church a long time, you have devoted faith, but you are... are it this way. If you've had it, you know. So if you're not sure, seek it. God will give it to you. He's not holding back. He's not hiding. The mystery has been revealed in Christ. It's right there for any of us to receive it. Amen? Okay, so... Which is um, because I got a lot more to say, so I better move fast. So, it the inward change affects shown our behavior. It reflects in our behavior. There is an outward change in behavior, in disposition, in language, how we make our decisions, how we treat other. And there is a significant change. And then, if there is enough people that this happens to at the same time, then it begins to affect culture, it affects society, it affects politics, okay, it affects... We're saying here that this happens to a large mass of large ratio of people in a given area at the same time, then you're going to have things like bars and taverns, for lack of business, um, crime drops, um, people are all of a sudden... Merchandise, embezzling money for five years. Somebody's going to their spouse saying, "Look, I'm having an affair for years, and if 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 will, I want to make it right, you know." So people start doing these things. People vote differently. People have a a life, and so there's an out. I had so much fun this week, but. Listen, listen to what, what John Wesley says. And, and any of these guys, um, you could some of this. So he, said, he, he describes his, his progression of zero his ministry okay, to after his experience. All right? From the year 1725 to 1729, I preached much but saw no fruit. From the year 1729 to 34, laying a deeper foundation of repentance, I saw a little fruit. From 1734 to 1738, speaking more of faith in Christ, I saw more fruit of my preaching. 1738 to this time, speaking continually of Jesus Christ, laying him only for the foundation of the whole building, making him all in all, the song we sang, the first and the last, preaching only on his plan, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. The word ran as fire among the stubble. It was, more, it, it was glorified more and more multitudes crying out, What must I do to be saved? And afterwards witnessing by grace we are Amen. The guy, Augustus Frank, in the 1600s, um, he, uh, he started an orphanage. He, he uh, started... So uh, one thing, uh, one thing that marks a revival is some social change. Or okay, and we're kind of getting, uh, getting, uh, getting our heads around revival in general or awakening. Kind of looks like 
what are the what are the common threads or what are a you know three day camp meeting up in North Georgia. Become that. They're happening up in Well, no, not not the oil running. Dawsonville. Yes, Dawsonville revival. There's one going up on up there. They're doing baptism services in the middle of the night, and it's just, I guess it's still going. I haven't been following it. Tabs with it. So, oh, what's that, Robert? COVID. <laughs> COVID. Yeah, I haven't looked at it since COVID. So, they ask us at an awakening early church. So, they list here. Acts 2, verses 42 to 47, and they ask us to take a look at it in a specific way. So I'm going to read these verses, and then we'll kind of talk about it, and then uh, wrap up here. So, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Uh, this, is after, uh, this is after Pentecost, and Peter preaches his sermon, and 3,000 are saved. Sort of gives a summary of, of it here, Luke does for us. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. They gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being. Amen. So that that sounds uh, a lot like what we were talking about over here. People are obviously being changed inside and out, right? On the inside and on the outside. By the way, I forgot to point out that all of these all all of these guys and and I'm sorry, ladies, but it you know the history books have the guys, you know. So I apologize for that. Uh, y'all contributed tremendously and still do. Um, John Wesley, George Whitfield. Whitfield was a Calvinist. Wesley, an, an Arminian, right? Free will guy. Um, Whitfield supported slavery to some degree. I, I still am not sure to how much, you know. Um, I told you this guy, Mino Simmons, during the Reformation era, he, he was pretty angry. These were not perfect people. And they didn't all agree theologically on everything. But what held them together is the experience of meeting God. That was the common experience. Amen? So I think it's worth pointing that out. So uh, Blackaby and King ask us to look at... There's a lot to look at in this verse. I mean, it's just jam-packed, right? You could preach a series of sermons out of this. Okay? What they ask us to look at here... As you read the bold is, as you read the following description, underline the words that describe early believers' emotions. And they're nice enough after the text to tell us what they are, right? (laughs) So, they devoted themselves, were filled with awe, and had glad and sincere hearts. Okay? So, I focused on uh, going on. 
And so he's ask, they're asking us to look at what is happening inside the believers, right? What are they experiencing on the inside? And one of them is awe or fear. If you go read the, the Greek, it's fear, okay? And so we're pretty familiar with that concept, fear of the Lord, right? It's a very uh, common phrase we use in uh, church circles, the fear of the Lord, um, or even outside, right? I'll put the... So, but there's not just one kind of fear of God, right? Now there's the fear of God of God is a meanie who's, you know, going to send people to hell because he's angry at sin. Then there's the fear of God of I'm going to come to church um, with a reverent demeanor today, okay? And that is really a self-created fear of God. It comes from us. We decide we're going to honor God and show him whatever type of reverence we're able to. But I'm going to suggest that the type of fear that they were experiencing here was not created, was not them deciding they're going to be reverent towards God. They had the fear of God because God was doing something in their midst. It was a move of God. God was there. They couldn't deny it. People were getting healed. You know, people who hated them were suddenly bringing them dinner. You know, uh, people are repaying debts. People are sharing things. Uh, somebody who was greedy is all of a sudden, like, sharing everything and selling possessions and taking care of the poor and starting a soup kitchen. That They're in awe. I mean, they are just, it's um, they are amazed at what God is doing in their midst. So they are in awe because God is doing something. Not because they decided they want to be reverent towards God. So there's a there's a difference there. So I want to suggest once again to have to understand this type of fear of God, you have to be in the presence of God doing miraculous things. You cannot manufacture this type of fear of God or this awe of God on your own. I can't. Now, have I experienced it? Thankfully I have. On some mission trips at Rekindle the Flame. Um, we're going to experience it in August in Brazil. I can promise you. You know, um, But there's lots, of, there's lots of people all over the world who are creating opportunities for people to experience this type of thing and understand what these believers were experiencing. That being in the presence of God who just is doing something miraculous and healing people right before your eyes and saving people and people are falling out People are getting a prayer language here. If you've ever been one of those services or been at one of those events, you know what I'm talking about. There's just sort of this, most people, when you go to something like that, you have a moment where you kind of go look around and you go, oh my goodness, what is happening? You know? And that's the awe, just, this is unbelievable. This is incredible. I'm so glad I'm here. Have I died and gone to heaven? Right? Um, so, can't guarantee it you know we don't we don't we promise that you're going to speak in tongues and have a miraculous okay but i can tell you that probably will i mean when you go to cuba and you're in those churches the presence of god falls and it's a mess y'all i mean because you got you know we're all imperfect people and we're just uh, we're just trying to keep keep people from busting their heads open 
Because God is the one doing the work, and we're just there trying to make sure nobody gets hurt, right? (laughs) Amen? So the awe, the fear that they were experiencing was because God was doing something. And you, you can't create that in yourself. Another thing that I picked out here is they were just glad, joy. I mean, they were happy. I mean, think about, you know, Wesley's uh, description. Think about uh, that guy, Augustus Frank, and he just said, I was just filled with joy. And, you know, they're just filled with joy. Where life seems like it's, it's, it's just got no joy, where it's, it's just mundane. Everything's black and white. Everything is seen. You know, there's no color. All the colors are dimmed and faded like pastel. There's no brightness. The lines... The lines in the paint. Suddenly it's like, whoa, everything pops in life. You're full of joy. You're, you're happy. You, you're, you're so grateful that you have another breath. And then another thing is sincere hearts. Well, that, the Greek there really points, I'm wrapping up here, I promise. It wraps, uh, really points to simple. Simple. And I love that. You know, once again, I think of John Wesley's description that Faith is not mental assent. It's just faith in Christ. Faith in Jesus that He died on the cross for our sins. And that He saved us from a life separated from God. From eternity separated from God. And so, it's just simple faith coming to God and saying, I got nothing. I, I can't offer you anything. But I'm here asking you to give me everything that you got for me. So please give it, Lord, because I... I want it. If you're willing to give it, I want it. I tell you, he's willing. We serve a good God. So, that's sort of uh, what I wanted to bring as we look at these first two pages. I want to thank you for for joining us. And I want to lead us just in a prayer. Um, I wanted to, I didn't mean to close this. I wanted to lead us in in this prayer by um, Habakkuk at the bottom of page 6. It's uh, verse verse 2 of chapter 3 out of the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk prophet that lived of, um, of Judah's time, right before the Babylonians came, if you're into biblical history at all. And so, you know, he lived during a difficult time where he was really seeing the decline of the people of God. He, he was really, he, and he knew it was imminent. He knew that, that it was coming. And he was heartbroken of it. That's, that's what a lot of his book is about, is God... Are you really going to do this? Are you really going to allow these Babylonians to come and take us away? I mean, this is, I, I don't know, I don't have any context for understanding that this has happened to us. Um, but chapter 3 is a beautiful prayer where he finally learns to trust in God. And he says it this way. So I'm going to read it first and then we'll pray it together. He says, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's pray this together. And believe as we pray that uh, He is here to awaken our hearts, to revive our spirits, to testify within us as Paul says in Romans 8:16 that we are the children of God every day that we wake up 
He is right there saying, you're a child of God. I saved you. I redeemed you. Don't worry about today. I got today. It's okay. Just come to me. Let's pray this together. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy.